Hello and welcome to Next. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. Uh, thank you for tuning in to this very uh, unusual broadcast. You probably noticed this is a little more casual than normal. Uh, like the rest of the country, COVID-19 has impacted the way we do business here at WQLM. And being in studio is just not an option right now. But nonetheless, we are excited to come to you to talk about some of the pressing issues that, I, that not only affect our city, but our country as well. We've got a special guest today that will help us unpack a phenomenon that COVID-19 has revealed. Unfortunately, when you look across the country in various cities, especially the larger markets, Chicago, Detroit, et cetera, you see a disproportionate number of African-Americans uh, not only contracting COVID-19, but dying from COVID-19. And so it has sparked somewhat of a, um, a panic amongst African-Americans, a, a concern, if you will, because uh, there are already so many different things that are disproportionately affecting the African-American community. And so as this thing is spreading across the country, you know, unfortunately, we find that this too has a disproportionate effect on the African-American community. Some attributed to those health disparities that have led up to this moment. And, you know, others speculate on an array of things. But one of the things that we wanted to do today was just bring forth a professional who could help us really analyze the issue, talk about some of the health patterns that we've noticed in the African-American community and COVID-19. We wanna separate myths from reality and receive information that comes from a worthy source that is actually educated on the topic. So with that being said, I have the pleasure of bringing you Dr. Sidney Coupe from Florida, who is the founder of Spark Health. Dr. Coupe, welcome to the show. Marcus, thank you so much, and uh, thank you to your viewers for uh, being here with us today. Um, as you know, this is uh, a critical time, and so this is a great opportunity to really share with our community um, mm -hmm. responsibly um, of real issues that are impacting our community um, in times like this, and also knowing the real truth and the answers around uh, how to really uh, manage during this time. And so it's always a pleasure to have this time to, to share with your audience. And, and Marcus, thank you for the invite again. Um, as you said, I am the founder of Spark Health. Spark Health is actually an accountable health organization that we started back in 2005 um, that focuses on connecting uh, families in communities to quality healthcare services. And I am currently the chief medical officer of one of their flagship offices in Florida, um, Coupe Quality Clinic where we provide a comprehensive healthcare delivery model. And what we do really, Marcus, is that we realize that health is all interconnected when it comes to um, our people. And so it's not just uh, physical health, but we also deal with uh, mental health as well. So our model involves providing primary care, chronic disease management, behavioral health, as well as wellness. Uh, because as you know, you know, we always try to keep people from getting ill, but more importantly, living in a lifestyle that uh, at least supports that. So that is what we do here in uh, Florida and in one of our uh, clinics here under Spark Health. In addition, for me, I'm, I'm an internal medicine physician. As you know, I was trained in Erie, Pennsylvania. I actually went to Gannon, Marcus. <laughs> Gannon for my undergrad. Uh, and uh, I want to give a shout out to Gannon University. Um, but definitely uh, went to Gannon University, and then I went to um, Erie, Pennsylvania, Lake Erie, for, for medical school. Um, with that, I went to uh, Pittsburgh for my master's in public health. So I, I did get a public health degree while I was in medical school. 
And then I ended up uh, doing my residency in Pennsylvania in internal medicine. And with that, I did a fellowship at University of Michigan. Uh, and I did a, a master's in health services research here, uh, where I learned to uh, look at systems um, and how to improve them, um, specifically health systems exactly, whether if it's a country's health systems or even as a micro level hospital health systems. So uh, for about now over 10 years, I've been here in South Florida um, delivering this care, um, simultaneously taking care of people in the hospital as well. So I practice acute hospital medicine as well. So we are really doing a lot of population health management in this area, um, making sure that we keep people healthy, um, keep them out of the hospital. As you can imagine during this time, this COVID-19 pandemic, uh, I've definitely been, uh, so to speak, busy, <laughs> you know, taking care of people. Um, and um, we've been doing our best here in the front lines to care for people who either were infected uh, with the uh, virus, with either mild or moderate infection. Uh, we manage them at home. Uh, we communicate with them here via telemedicine. And I also take care of people who are severely ill with the virus in the hospital. And we take care of them. We, we provide them urgent care, um, life-saving measures. Um, we've even involved in experimental medications as well in order for us to save their lives. And so um, that's the spectrum of the work that I do here. Um, I always say to people, you know, don't ask me about my degrees or, or what titles I hold. It's really what have I done? And so mm -hmm. I hope this gives you and your audience uh, a little bit of good perspective of who I am and what I'm doing right now for the community. So when you talked about this fellowship, is that the Albert Schweitzer Fellowship? Actually, that's the, uh, so you got me there, Marcus. That fellowship I, I also did in Pittsburgh. Um, mm. I was finishing up uh, my last two years of medical school and completing my uh, master's in public health. So I also, in addition to all of that, I guess med school wasn't keeping me busy enough, so I did the Albert Schweitzer Fellowship. Yes. Um, and, and I want to give a shout out to, to those folks because um, their, their work is very important. Um, while I was there, Again, I want to be very granular in what I've done. Um, when I was there, I created a health program for people who were recently incarcerated and they're coming out. And what we did is we trained them on health education um, around uh, sexual transmitted diseases um, just so they can uh, reacclimate in our society. So that was an amazing uh, uh, project uh, as a young uh, uh, you know, medical student uh, coming up. And, it gave me some access and, and a lot of lessons there. So, so shout out to them. But the, uh, the fellowship that I did at University of Michigan, though, was the uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholars Program, which is a two-year program at University of Michigan um, that allowed me not only to um, hone on my clinical skills, but also uh, I got a second master's in health services research um, that really looks at health systems and, and improving um, uh, the health system in general in our country and countries around the world. Mm. So I know that there's a special interest. Well, first of all, when it comes to incarceration, that's, that's actually one of the contributing factors as I'm reading this research on the way COVID-19 has descended upon the African-American community. I know that the numbers are disproportionate with African-Americans in our prison industrial complex. That has become somewhat of a petri dish in some areas, especially crowded jails like the city of Chicago. So that's one of the lending factors as well. Uh, but we'll come back to that in a minute. I've got a friend of mine that lives in uh, Cap Haitian, Haiti, ah. from Port-au-Prince. 
And, and so there's a special interest and a special relationship between Spark and Haiti. Unpack that a little bit for us, please. Well, awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, you know, first of all, I am Haitian-American. My, uh, I was born in Brooklyn, New York by uh, two amazing parents, um, Haitian immigrants. Um, and, you know, they, they trained me and they raised me to always know, never forget where you come from. And so it was natural for me to have a love for, for my parents' native country and to go back. And, and I, I go back as a, young, as a young kid, but now going back as a professional to, to provide my contribution um, to the country. Um, the way Spark Health has developed is that we started identifying issues around uh, healthcare in Haiti and, and looking at the funding um, as well um, as an opportunity. So both the access to primary care, basic care, as well as looking at how do we actually pay for these basic care in a country uh, that has been stricken by a lot of poverty, um, a lot of politics that's unfair, uh, unfair politics, I should say, um, that at least keep that country down. And so one of the things that Spark Health has done is we've developed a model where families that are living in the United States can pay a membership fee for their loved ones in Haiti to have access to primary care. And so uh, we've achieved that model by having great relationships in Haiti um, with doctors um, and nurses that are there. Um, and, and they're doing an amazing job down there, by the way. And what we've done is collaborated with them and provided them resources for them to be able to provide a quality service um, around primary care and chronic disease management. And we connected those clinics to families here. And I am happy to say that those efforts have evolved to where now we have uh, birthed a new organization called Sunday New. Um, and Sunday New is a, a two-year-old company where now it's a healthcare logistical company that offers families that live in the U.S., whenever they travel to Haiti, they logistically have emergency services catered to them in case of an emergency while simultaneously allowing their loved ones that live in Haiti to get primary care. And so this is very exciting to know that the work that we've been doing since 2005 in Haiti hasn't really been overlooked. One, number two, there are other people that were thinking like us. And so, um, you know, Spark Health now works and supports with uh, what Sunday New is doing, which is um, really an exciting uh, movement, really, from my, from my opinion. And so I encourage you all, if you're listeners yourself, to go into SuntayNewHaiti.com to learn more about this way that we can deliver healthcare logistics to folks and address healthcare needs in Haiti while addressing a very important need uh, for people who are traveling to Haiti to get emergency services in case an emergency occurs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and yeah. that happens quite a bit. I know that even in the, the church world, uh, for whatever reason, that is the area that they send the most missionaries to. I, I think when I run into people uh, from a church perspective, that's one of the number one things that I hear. There's always a relationship with Haiti. So that unto itself is a good thing. As you are studying or, or executing uh, this very well-thought-out plan in Haiti, talk about some of the things in the U.S. healthcare system that you see that you either view differently now that you've done some of the things that you're doing in Haiti. And, and some areas that you think we ought to look at for genuine either um, adjustment or termination in some areas. What, what changes would you make now that you know what you know? Well, you know, 
I would say, you know, going to Haiti, even as a Haitian American, so, you know, I, I have ties in Haiti, you know, I'm, I'm, I have, I'm of Haitian descent. And even I, being in Haiti, and when I went to Haiti, it's a humbling experience. You know, that's the first thing, you know, you, you start recognizing what's really important. Um, you know, and, and everyone will have a different experience when they go to Haiti, but there's one common commonality that anyone who travels there to see the object poverty, to see the struggles there, and yet to see the beauty of the country, to see the beauty of the people, the resilience of the people, it really creates a humble experience for a lot of people. And, and so that's the first thing that, that, that happens. You start appreciating, uh, so to speak, the little things you know, in life, you know, the things that matter. Um, and you start re-prioritizing re your life, so to speak. And so, I mean, my first time going, going to Haiti, because as you know, I was born here, and the first time I went, um, that was that experience. The other thing though, um, having some sort of uh, connection to a developing country uh, such as Haiti, um, and as a healthcare professional to go out and do uh, global health, so to speak, it really gives you a sense of how best to practice cost-effective care, right? Mm. You start to appreciate um, you know, how to avoid being wasteful when it comes to resources, you know? utilizing um, the right resources. Um, as a doctor, you know, when treating patients, how to be effective, um, but yet be cost-effective, more important. So, so it definitely creates that sense of awareness um, about providing care. So traveling there definitely did that. And I would say the last thing, you know, and, and again, this could be a little bit biased because, you know, I'm Haitian myself, but you start realizing that Haiti is a beautiful country. Um, you start realizing the history behind that country. And, you know, we sitting here with, with the freedom that we have here, Marcus, you know, we owe that country a lot. Um, you know, being the first free black republic in the world, um, what that really signifies and, and represent for us, um, it was huge. And, and getting its independence back in, you know, 1804 uh, really made a difference and, and set off this whole momentum of, of abolishing slavery. So I think we have a lot uh, to be grateful for when that country uh, is mentioned and when we think about a country like Haiti. So let me ask you this. You, you've had an interesting journey uh, as, as a man of color. So I'm hearing Erie, Pennsylvania. I'm hearing Brooklyn. Your beginnings are in Brooklyn. I'm hearing Haitian descent. And so now you're in Florida, which is the melting pot for many people of color. And then you're working again in Haiti. And so your journey as a man of color has been very extensive. It's been varied in a lot of different ways. What, what do you, what's your take on the plight of people of color in healthcare overall? What are you seeing, not just in this country, but abroad? And what's been your feeling? And lastly, did, did some of that have anything to do with you going into medicine in the first place? Yeah, no, great question, Marcus. You know, uh, first of all, you know, I, I took that journey in the front seat, right? <laughs> and, you know, as a black man, um, in America and, and really doing this work. And, and first of all, I wanna thank those who came before me. Um, my success today, where I am today, I owe it to my mother, my father, for decisions and choices that they made in their lives that impacted me to be here today. So nothing, Marcus, I, and I tell people, you know, don't believe the hype because although I'm a hard worker, although I am uh, dedicated and committed to what I do, and, and to some degree, um, very talented. But the reason I'm here 
has absolutely nothing to do with me. So I am so grateful and thankful uh, for my parents and my ancestors before me. Because again, the choices, the decisions they've made had set the stage for us and for me to be here today. So that's the first thing I want to uh, uh, you know, be clear about. The second thing is, you know, my whole entire experience in life from, from the beginning in Brooklyn up until this point has really inspired the possibility that I've created for myself today. The possibility of being able to be a, a, a almost as a, you know, as a force in our community uh, to provide tremendous support for communities that look like mine when I was growing up, for communities that resemble, uh, you know, the communities in which that my parents always say, never forget where you come from. And so the experience of me uh, growing up definitely uh, uh, inspired to create that possibility, in fact, of the reason why I'm here in Florida, where you have majority, um, you know, minorities, you know, you have a huge African-American population, a huge Caribbean Afro uh, community, um, Latin community um, that's right here and that we serve. And so certainly uh, my experience growing up has uh, really pushed my decision to always give back to my community. Now, obviously, growing up and, and being a black man in America, I have a, a unique perspective, um, a perspective that can address a lot of gaps around our healthcare um, um, period, you know, access to healthcare, quality to healthcare, or even the cost of healthcare. And the fact that I'm a black man, it provides me a unique perspective that I can at least contribute to the ongoing conversation in hope to come up with realistic, solutions to some of the gaps that we're experiencing today. Mm. So I've got a friend named Dr. James, well, not doctor, but uh, Pastor James Israel is the person I referred to, and I'm sure that he'll enjoy watching this broadcast. This conversation reminds me a lot of my conversations with him. The last time he came to Erie State in my home, and we discussed a lot of what you're saying I'm hearing from James in different discussions. And so this was very refreshing. And I, I want to talk a little bit about the phenomenon that they call weathering. And in the African-American community, you listen to different people with medical backgrounds speak. Uh, they'll use that term. And what it is in a nutshell is you think about that fight or flight syndrome or, um, you know, when you get into a situation, your heart rate goes up, your breathing increases and things along those lines. And so for African-Americans or those that have been traumatized, that happens. And what is not intended is for something like that to happen over and over and over again. And then you think about the the way stress affects the body. And I know my doctor talks to me all the time about that. The stress that's inflicted by racism, by lack of quality health care, uh, by uneven circumstances, all of this contributes what they like to call weathering in the African-American community, which physiologically, some say, makes them even more vulnerable. Okay, and so when you add a COVID-19 or some of these other things, hypertension, high blood pressure, so on and so forth, that kind of sets the stage for these other diseases. Talk about that a little bit. Are you familiar with the term? And if you aren't, just how you feel about that entire theory. You know, um, and, you know, the term itself um, is not necessarily uh, utilized necessarily in the health in healthcare industry, so to speak. Um, we don't use the term weathering per se, but it sounds to me that you're implying, uh, so to speak, making projections based off of what we know of the current situation. Um, well, 
you know, one of the things we got to think about when we think about our communities, Marcus, is that we've been having healthcare disparities for quite some time. And in fact, it's very disappointing um, to know that despite decades of trying to uh, address or study, um, you know, healthcare disparities, um, there hasn't been much movement, okay, in terms of the positive end. There hasn't been much closure of gaps because um, they still exist. The same problems persist. Now, when you think about healthcare disparities in particular, you have to think about number one, access. You know, our communities, um, for multiple reasons, and, and this is why when we address health disparities, we need everyone at the table from all disciplines because access to healthcare has a lot of factors that play into why people in our community don't have access, right? So uh, whether if it's economic, whether if it's education, um, whether if it's location, geographic, right? There's a lot of reasons why we in our community don't have access. So when we think about health dis healthcare disparities, access is a major one, right? And the other thing is, which we don't talk much about, but, but it's, it's there in our face, is the healthcare experiences of our people in our community, of our, our minorities, brown and black folks. Their experiences of healthcare is different as well. And, 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 and so, you know, when they go to the doctor's appointment, um, they may not get the same level of service that their white counterpart may get. So, you know, or they may not get the same level of quality that their counterpart may get. So we got to think about the experiences of our folks when they're accessing these healthcare. Um, you know, the other thing around healthcare disparities, it goes around quality as well, because we know that there are people in our community who don't get services offered to them because of their color because of their ethnic background. And so that is also a reality that we're facing. And unfortunately, you know, although there's a lot of amazing people who's been looking at these issues, um, but you know, nothing uh, a tremendous has been done in terms of achieving any milestones of closing that gap. Now, saying that, we do know how to solve this problem. You see, so we do know what are the components of a starting to address healthcare disparities. Again, you know, it's not a one magic bullet. Um, it requires not just people from the healthcare industry, it requires you know, business folks, it requires policy uh, folks, it requires the spectrum of our society to come together and say, look, we need to address this problem seriously. And so, but there are things that we can do individually to start addressing this problem. And, and I'll give you an example. You know, for me, one simple, easy way that I address, and I'm addressing healthcare disparities um, from my small ecosystem, is the fact that I'm a black physician in a majority black community. That in itself starts addressing healthcare disparities right on, right? Because I'm a black physician treating black people, therefore, I'm more likely to offer them the services that they need. I'm more likely to provide care to them in a manner that is of high quality, of great service, um, and not disqualify them because of the color of their skin or their ethnic background. So, so that's just an example of one thing that we can do. But also, you know, this notion of mindfulness and teaching people to be aware, creating systems where we cannot allow one practitioner to make decisions for our people in our community because they're not immune to their own biases. 
So therefore, if a doctor who might not be black, who might be Caucasian or another culture, provide care to our community, black communities, they might have specific biases that they have to be aware of. So are there potential structure we can put in place, systems we can put in place that can override that potential bias? So these are the things that we got to talk about. We got to talk about them um, very candidly, openly, like we're doing right now, Marcus, to start really, truly addressing healthcare disparities. And because that, the existence of healthcare disparities is the reason why our people are getting infected more by COVID-19 and the reason why our people are dying more from the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. You're, this is next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. We're here live with Dr. Sidney Coupe, founder of Spark Health in Florida. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Dr. Coupe about the adverse effects that COVID-19 is having on the African-American community. Uh, that was an actually, actually an ex excellent segue, Dr. Coupe. Talk about the rise of COVID-19. Give us, a, uh, give us your, your feeling when you first started to hear about this, you started to see the numbers rise. When did you realize this could, in, could uh, indeed turn into a pandemic? Go back to that moment and talk about that a little bit. Sure, Marcus. No, you know, that's a, that's a great question. It's important because I think we all had our experiences. You know, where were you when you first heard this COVID-19 pandemic came out, you know? And we all can talk on that. But I can tell you here um, in our office at Coupe Quality Clinic, you know, we first heard of it in January. Um, as you know, um, the COVID-19, the scientific name for the virus is SARS-CoV-2 um, RNA virus. And it's a virus that uh, is a zoonotic infection, which means that it came from an animal and transmitted to a human being, okay? And um, it happened to be in Wuhan, China, um, uh, and we suspect it could have been a bat, but either way, um, it's a zoonotic infection. It's a very good point to, to make because there's a lot of conspiracy theories around where this virus came from, et cetera, and that whether it was created. But the reality is zoonotic infections is not new. That's the first thing. Um, you know, they're very common. They've been going around. We in the scientific world, we know of them. We studied them. Um, number two, in fact, coronavirus is not a new virus. Um, to us at all. In fact, we know coronavirus as well. And if you remember the SARS or the MERS mm -hmm. epidemic, so um, those you can remember. And, and we know a lot about the virus already. So now COVID-19 is a new strand of coronavirus. And, and so we first heard of it back in January. And when I first heard about the, uh, the outbreak in China, I knew that there's something we need to be seriously paying attention to. Because at that point, you know, we already know how viruses get transmitted. You know, um, the, the minute you transmit a virus to a human being, then the virus start becoming ubiquitous, so to speak, that it's everywhere. And as you know, um, hygiene is so important. And, you know, living in a, a well-industrialized country like this and, you know, and, and, you know, having all these amazing technology from cars and, and you know, beautiful restaurants, et cetera, you know, we are at risk, we're exposing ourselves because if we touch a, a door, if, we, if we're at work, we're touching our faces and we're, we're not paying attention to what we're doing, you know, immediately I knew based on, on those two things that this thing could potentially come to our country and, and it can come to our country pretty fast. So, so we started paying more attention to it and we started studying more about the, the, the evidence that's coming out of China at that time. 
And then in February, we knew that it was going to hit. Since back in February, I was making a lot of social media uh, videos about how we need to, you know, practice uh, very important public health measures, washing our hands, preventing ourselves from um, sneezing on each other, and if you're sick, to stay at home. And so we've been sending that message back as, as, back as far as February, um, as early on as February, because we knew that, you know, the minute that in China it was an outbreak and there became an epidemic in that region, it was a matter of time that this was going to be a pandemic for us. And so our clinic started taking immediate measures. So in the beginning of March, our clinic developed a, a, a set of uh, private care approaches that we wanted to put in place to protect ourselves and to protect our patients. And so we did that. And, and not surprisingly, March 11th, WHO announced that the COVID-19 became a pandemic, which means that now the virus has now spread to most countries around the world. So we knew that and we were preparing for that. And so the way we prepared for it, at least in our office, is that we, we started educating our patients, obviously. Um, we developed safety protocols um, for ourselves as well as our patients. Um, we started using our telemedicine platform more, um, you know, only allowing essential visits to come to the office. And, and, and lastly, we coordinated um, more with hospitals and laboratories. So that means people who are leaving the hospital, we made sure that we controlled their diseases, we got appropriate handoff to keep them out of the hospital because we knew that this virus was gonna hit and it was gonna hit us hard. And so those are the things that we did and that, that's what happened for us here, um, at least in Florida, here in South Florida. So from a medical professional standpoint, grade the United States' performance on their response to COVID-19 so far, from the time we understood that this was a pandemic to this very moment, how do you feel we've done as a country in responding to this? Well, you know, um, I can, you know, 20, you know, I guess hindsight, you know, it's always 2020. And so, you know, we can always uh, have our commentary around that. I do think though that we weren't prepared. I do feel that we weren't prepared. And in fact, um, even, you know, when you look at previous administrations, um, when it comes to this, uh, you know, pandemics and, you know, there was really people advising that we get prepared. Um, although this was not expected, um, we did know that we were vulnerable to any pandemic, any viral pandemic that could happen. And, un and unfortunately, it did happen um, before um, anyone listened and before we actually, um, you know, prepared ourselves. So what are some of the things that we could have done? Well, surveillance is the first thing, you know. You know, can we have increased our surveillance um, and, and not just knowing that a, an outbreak occurs somewhere, in this case, it happened to be China, but also having an appropriate response. So I do think, though, there was opportunities there, and we've, we all know the opportunities, um, not only opportunities around surveillance and responding appropriately, such as having enough testing, um, being able to, um, you know, start a public health uh, a measure such as social distancing sooner um, than later. So there are definitely opportunities that, you know, as a medical professional, I've witnessed, um, you know, as this pandemic uh, unfolded. But um, again, you know, hind you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, And I do think, though, we uh, need to really focus more on how do we get out of this mess, you know. And I always tell people, 
you know, we were talking about not enough testing early, um, late, mid, mid and late March. And, you know, I, I said to everyone, you know, we need to focus on how do we solve that testing gap, right? How do we solve that? Let's figure out how we solve that. Because unfortunately, blaming is not going to solve anything. And so in the medical community, um, physicians, nurses, and, and I, I think I speak to a lot, for a lot of them, we were more concerned of getting it done, focusing on protecting our patients, protecting our communities. And that's what was important for us. So when these disproportionate numbers started to show up, when did it capture your attention that this was hitting uh, communities of color a little harder than other communities? When did that start to dawn on you? You know, if you remembered, Marcus, early on back in February, people were saying black people can't get this virus. Remember, remember that? that. <laughs> right, right. So, so I went on social media to, to debunk that, that theory right away, right? Um, you know, being black doesn't create any disadvantage or advantage of any kind. Uh, well, the advantage part we could talk about later, but it doesn't create any disadvantage necessarily when it comes to your, your health care. Okay, it doesn't create any disadvantage or advantage when it comes to this pandemic necessarily. The fact that you're black, and I'm, I want to repeat that, the fact that you're black because of your ethnic background, it does not put you at any higher risk or lower risk. Okay, now what we're seeing when the pandemic came out in back in February, we knew just like with any other disaster that it will expose the weaknesses of our systems it will expose the weaknesses of our healthcare system. And that's essentially what the COVID-19 ended up doing. And so because we knew that early on, we wanted our folks, number one, to know that, yes, you are vulnerable of getting it, so you can get the virus. And number two, we have to be more aggressive in our communities um, in implementing some of these public health measures. We have to be more aggressive in our community in getting those messaging out there for us to be aware and so we can protect our families and our communities. Because we knew that our communities were at higher risk. And for example, when you think about transmissibility, who are essential workers right now when you think about it? You know, mm -hmm. most essential workers are minorities. Most of those jobs, those occupations that either put yourself at a higher exposure rate or put yourself in a situation where you can easily get the virus transmitted because of overcrowdedness, depending on where you live, geographically, et cetera, inner cities. You know, when they talk about those occupations, those um, settings in which the virus can spread fast, those are our communities they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so we knew right away that not only we can get this, but number two, we were most vulnerable because of the current gaps and the current opportunities that exist when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to economy, when it comes to education, when it comes to geographic, when it comes to real estate, all of the gaps you can imagine in our society contributes mm -hmm. to why we are vulnerable and, and why we are getting hit hard and the hardest hit uh, for our communities with this COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. I thought about that in particular when it comes to nursing homes. Uh, I can't speak to, to Florida, but I know here, when you look at these nurse aides or these home health aides even, a large number of those women predominantly are African-American. 
And so when you look at some of the numbers that are coming out of facilities like these, once again, you look at the numbers, the sheer numbers of minorities in their employment ranks. And so that has a lot to do with what we're seeing play out in front of us as well. Right, right. What are some of the takeaways for the African-American community uh, from your vantage point? Well, you know, Marcus, there's a lot of takeaways here. Um, And one of the things I use as an analogy is when you think about warfare, right? When you think about military um, uh, operations, you know, if you are, if I may use this analogy, strategy is important. Coming up with a strategy and how to attack your enemy. In this case, COVID-19 is our enemy. But it's very hard to develop and think about strategy when you're under fire, right? So when you're under fire, you can't really strategize at the moment in time. Right now, we got to get out of line of fire. We got to put out the fire. We got to get to safety and then come up with strategy. And so I share this analogy because our community was in the, under fire. New York was under fire a few weeks ago, right? It was under fire. The hospitals were overwhelmed. There was no more hospital beds for people who were sick, who were severely ill with the virus. People were dying, not just because of the virus, but they were dying because there was not available resources. Now that is a death that did not have to happen. New York City was under fire. So, you know, when you think about the work that we all had to do to come together to address the hospitals in New York that were overwhelmed. You know, I want to thank all the healthcare professionals, the nurses, the doctors. I mean, we had doctors and nurses from other states who came to New York to give them a supportive hand. Um, The National Guards, um, you know, we want to thank all those who had to come together. Obviously, uh, Governor Cuomo, with his efforts and his leadership, you know, to be able to uh, uh, get people together to get out of line of fire, to save as many lives as possible. But again, the strongest weapon we had against this virus, this pandemic, was indeed the physical distancing that we did, the social distancing that we did. The fact that our members of our community decided to stay home, that was the most impactful and to date, the most successful strategy to address this pandemic, okay? And so I think, you know, when we think about strategies, you know, when should we have implemented this social distancing, this physical distancing. And so that's another opportunity that may exist when it comes to our response to a potential threat, such as a pandemic, such as a COVID-19. So again, the social distancing, the physical distancing was successful in my opinion, and allowed us to get get out of line of fire, to regroup, to see how we can address this pandemic in a more effective manner. And I think that's what we're doing now. As you hear, there's some experimental drugs that we're looking at in terms of to treat people who are severely ill, who are hospitalized in the, with the virus, right, who are critically ill. And so that gives us time to look at those type of um, potential treatments and hopefully eventually come up with a vaccination for this virus. But again, Marcus, you know, I think for our viewers who are listening, it's, it's this notion of having us to come together, to pull together. We had to get out a line of fire which we successfully did with physical distancing. And now we need to come back together to start talking about how do we now go back to our regular lives? What are the things that we need to implement in order for us to be able to do that successfully? Mm. 
So what I want to touch on earlier, you talked about you going after some of these uh, falsehoods or conspiracy theories, one of which was the melanin in our skin as, as African-Americans protects us in such a way where we can't get uh, COVID-19. I heard that early on. Take time a little bit right now to rehash some of the things that you've gone after personally in terms of false information or misinformation and help enlighten our viewers a little bit and our listeners. Right, right. So as we heard me previously said, one of the uh, major misconceptions on whether, you know, black people can get this virus, um, clearly that's not the case, right? Um, and evidence has shown that. And as this pandemic uh, evolved and unfolded, we started realizing not only can we get it, but we also are at highest risk. Um, the other uh, misconception I want to emphasize here is that just because you're black doesn't mean you're at risk of either getting the virus or at risk of having severe illness from the virus. Again, I'm going to repeat this, and it's so important. Because you're black does not mean you're at risk of getting the virus or at risk of having severe illness from the virus. Because I want to share this particular point specifically with my um, healthcare community, uh, my colleagues, um, especially those of different race, so we can make sure that we don't unintentionally develop a different bias here, okay? That can impact our community and further reduce our ability to access quality healthcare that we need. So that point is very, very important and that we need to emphasize. Now, the other thing is this, is that we had opportunities that existed, that already existed in our communities. We had issues around access to care in our community. We had issues around quality of care in our community that already existed, that predated COVID-19 pandemic. And so when the COVID-19 pandemic unfolded, the fact that we are getting more sick, our community is being impacted more, um, the virus is being transmitted more within our communities is a reflection of those gaps and those opportunities that existed in our communities. So if you put any community with those gaps and those opportunities, they too would have been inflicted by this COVID pandemic in a disproportionate manner. So that's the very important point in terms of dismissing any type of misconception about being black and having this uh, issue around this COVID-19 pandemic. So you spoke extensively about the value or just how important social distancing has been to us getting to where we are right now with this pandemic and hopefully eradicating it or, or bringing it under control in the near future. I've traveled on several occasions to Japan and even before this pandemic, I've noticed that them wearing surgical masks or um, maybe they have a cold, maybe they have allergies. It was kind of a part of their culture. At any given time, you would see 25, 30% of their culture on trains and in streets with masks on. So even as we're easing our social distancing or, or easing the, uh, the reins in terms of what things are open, what things are closed, is it, you think it's a good idea for us to embrace caution even as things open up? Are you being asked that from individuals? And what's your thought on that particular uh, issue? So 
Yeah, and, and that's a good question, uh, Marcus. You know, one of the things is that, you know, we gotta talk about the science behind the transmission of this virus. And number two, we gotta think about, you know, this mask strategy and, and the real reason for it. Um, as you mentioned, you know, you have different cultures, uh, different countries have had implemented this protective strategy, so to speak, you know, even before this pandemic. And, and probably because they've experienced multiple pan, uh, epidemics of viral uh, transmission. So one of the things is the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the COVID-19 virus, we still believe that it's a droplet spread organism. It's an organism that's spread by your sneezing, the particles that come out, your cough, those particles that come out, that shooting projectiles that come out, that may contain body fluids that will contain the virus and might pass it along to someone else. If you sneeze in your hands, you touch a doorknob, and somebody else touch that doorknob, yes, you can potentially transmit the virus. We don't believe the virus is airborne, okay? There's no scientific data at this point that says the COVID-19 virus is airborne. Now, if you're close enough to someone that's speaking to you, as you know, somebody who could be infected with the COVID-19 could be asymptomatic, right? They might not have any symptoms at all. We still believe that the closeness of somebody, you know, you could kiss you, could hug you, could shake your hands, et cetera, they touch their face, et cetera, that too can cause you to transmit the virus to someone. So, yes, wearing a mask in an overpopulated environment, such as, you know, maybe marketplaces in China um, or, you know, in a place where it's a closed uh, setting where there's multiple people, people on top of each other, yes, wearing a mask probably makes sense. You know, if you're in a restaurant and you respect, you know, the six feet distance away from someone um, and you don't have a mask on, that's effective as well. If you're outside walking, you know, riding a bicycle, you don't have a mask on, you're in a park, they're six feet distance away from you and others, not having a mask may not necessarily put you at a higher risk of getting this virus. So the mask strategy did two things. Yes, I think it has some impact on transmission because as I mentioned, you know, it's so easy to forget not to put your hands in your face. It's so easy to forget, um, you know, to stay at home when you have a cold or a cough. Um, and it's so easy to accidentally sneeze on someone. So I do think that the mask uh, strategy, although it was very controversial in the beginning, was a very good approach in at least addressing, number one, somewhat reducing somewhat of the transmission, but also, number two, addressing the anxiety that we have around getting infected. Because I will tell you, for me, even as a clinician, getting on an elevator after somebody leaves, having a mask on gives me some sense of security, so to speak, right? And so it removes a lot of anxiety for me. And so I do think the mask is going to be something that is going to be a new um, uh, norm in our society. Now, how we utilize the mask, um, give or take, um, would be, you know, uh, based on individuality in terms of what you feel that you feel that makes you safe. And two, um, depending on where you're going, if you're in a place where it's going to be a crowd of individuals and, um, you know, and you really can't respect the six feet distance, then yeah, 
wearing a mask would make sense. So in a nutshell, um, yes, I do think um, the mask strategy is something that not only we're doing now, but it's something that we're going to take with us moving forward. Um, but also, not to forget, the most important aspects of all the public health measures is hand washing. Washing your hands as frequently as possible, using hand sanitizers that have 60% of alcohol in them. Um, but again, washing your hands for 20 seconds with soap, making sure that any possible particles in your hands, virus, I mean, you know, even bacteria, because remember, I know the COVID-19 is something that we're concerned about, but there's other types of viruses that can be transmitted, right? Like the flu virus um, that we can't forget about, as well as any other bacteria that could move from you to someone else uh, unknowingly. And so I do think those measures are something that we as a society need to start doing, take seriously, um, be very meticulous um, as we do that. Mm. So we talked about the different contributing factors to the African-American community and some of the things that COVID-19 exposed, as you pointed out. There are so many factors that are beyond the control of the average person out there that, um, that they have to deal with. Are there things within the control of the average person? Let's deal with the African-American uh, community specifically. Are there things within the, their control that they can do now that COVID-19 has shown us uh, how vulnerable we are uh, that can kind of strengthen their own personal circumstances so maybe they aren't as vulnerable if, unfortunately, if we have the dis misfortune of hang having a pandemic again. Absolutely. And Marcus, you know, I'm, I'm a person that believes that, you know, real innovation happens locally, right? Real innovations, the most, the most impactful innovations are from those who are in the front lines, in the communities, that are here locally. So yes, absolutely. The number one thing that we can do as a community is assure that the people that are living in our community have access to basic health care. You know, we need to assure that the folks that are living with us in our neighborhoods, you know, our next door neighbors, they have access to health care, especially during a time like a, a, a viral pandemic, right? Because if somebody is sick, they have to be at home, they need the support and the advice of a provider to guide them so they can prevent, number one, not to transmit it to others, but number two, to make sure that they don't go from mild symptoms to severe symptoms that could end up in the hospital. So number one, accessing a provider, a healthcare to get basic care is important. You know, you know for all of our members in our community, businesses, you know, I think we do have a a potential uh, stakeholder here position that we can play, and a very important one. We have to make sure that we institute safety protocols in every single one of our businesses, hair salons, barbershops, restaurants, clinics. We all need to have safety protocols. Safety protocols that include cleaning, common spaces, cleaning desk spaces, cleaning doorknobs, um, in my office, we instituted cleaning policies three times a day. One, when we first come in. The second time, midday. Third time, when we're closing. It's a very simple strategy. Just clean any common area, doorknobs, computers, etc. Whatever your line of business is, institutes very thorough cleaning safety protocols. In addition, you know, you got to think about the use of face masks. When do you use it? If you work in a work environment with, with folks that are close by that can't respect the six feet uh, distance, 
wearing a mask might not be a bad idea, you know? And if you are serving people in the community that are coming in, as they come into your establishment, having them wearing a face mask is also a great strategy. Again, all of these safety protocols will be different um, depending on the line of business. For us, all of our patients, when they come to see us, they have masks on. All of our uh, team members and our, and our medical assistants, our nurses, they all have what we call PPEs, you know, protected personal equipment. And so I think establishing a clear safety protocol that everyone is following is a great first step for us to addressing this pandemic, but also going back to our normal routines and normal businesses. Now, the second thing, we have to educate and communicate. That's going to be very key. Business owners, um, employers, um, doctors, nurses, uh, you know, lawyers, whatever it is that you do, institute an education and communication uh, protocol within your business. That means whatever it is that your market is that you know a lot about, take the time to educate your customers, your patients, educate them. You know, as you heard that I've taken on to social media to educate people as well. So not only am I educating my patients locally, but I'm also educating for those who are following me and taking on that responsibility to send out the right messages about this virus and anything else. Because as you know, in our community, a lot of bad messaging goes on. A lot of rumors goes on that actually can put someone's life at risk. And so as a responsible person in the community, a business owner, you too should take that on in educating and communicating those you serve. Number three, we have instituted telemedicine, as you mentioned, right? So we, we actually are able to care for people for a distance. I do think whatever line of businesses you're in, you've got to start looking at the utilization of technology to limit the one-on-one uh, -one face face-to-face interactions. Whatever you can do remotely is something to start thinking about as a business owner, whether you are a restaurant that do delivery or don't do delivery, maybe it's something you need to consider whether you are an engineer, whether you are a telemarketer, whatever line of business that you do, you gotta start thinking about this notion of using remote services, um, you know, working from home. So those things are something to think about. And, and, and for us in our clinic, we're doing a lot more telemedicine. So things that condition we can manage using the phone, using FaceTime, we do that. Um, but for those who need to come in, we actually um, uh, ask them to come in and we do it responsibly using the safety protocols we do. And the fourth and last step, which you've heard, is the coordination. You know, for us, it's coordinating with hospitals and, and laboratories. But we gotta work together in the community. You can't have a restaurant and not communicate with other restaurants in your area. You can't have a mechanic uh, uh, or, a, um, or any type of store and not share information with each other. We are in this together. We have to coordinate together. We have to work together because this is not only going to help us to get out of this pandemic, but it's also going to help us long-term. And so those are the four recommendations I have for business owners, for anyone who's listening to us right now, Marcus, on how to not only address this current situation, but also moving forward. Mm. Excellent. Dr. Sydney Coupe, Dr. Sydney, thank you so much for coming on today and educating our viewers and our listeners on this COVID-19 pandemic, the effect that it's had on the African-American community and what we can do as a society to just kind of weather this storm right now. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. 
My pleasure. Listen, you know, this is part of my education and communication platform. So I, uh, I'm honored. And Marcus, I, I, I applaud you for the work that you're doing because you actually set up a platform um, for people to have a voice and for them to be heard and, and to know the real issues and to know what's really impacting our communities and what makes sense. And so, Marcus, I encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. And I thank you for this opportunity to be here with you. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, this is Marcus Atkinson. I've been your host here on Next on WQLN. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, you can tune in on the fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m. Uh, as your host, I will see you next time.